If we could ask God one question, we would ask why Alabama continues to win football every year. Why do we, why didn't you just have some big word across the sky that says, I'm God, I'm here, and I love you? Are you going to let me in when I get there? <laughs> How do I know if a certain season in my life is over with? You get, you know. How can we do a better job of learning to love like you are to other people that aren't like us here on earth? Why do you take some of the good people too early when we're still here on earth for a long time? Why do good things happen to bad people? I think I would ask uh, why God allows suffering in this world. All right, some good questions. And, uh, and today we're starting a new series. I always love the start of a new series. To me, it's like Christmas because I know, I mean, I just know that God has all kinds of things. We haven't unwrapped them yet, but there's so many things that God wants to do in our lives to inspire us, to transform us, to give us perspective. And in a series like this built around our, hey, what one question would you ask to God? You've populated the series with your questions. And I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen and really, really glad that you're here. And we're going to jump into that series. But first, a couple of other things to say. And, uh, and I'm going to join. The first one is I'm going to join with your host at whatever campus you're at to also say happy Mom's Day, happy Mother's Day. And we want to honor you. And uh, we, we do. We love you. We appreciate you, your sacrifice, your love. Um, I talked to my mom on the way to church early this morning and uh, just to say, you know, happy Mother's Day. And I was about to talk about all that I appreciated her, but, you know, with her about a, as a mom. And but before I could get there, she beat me to it. I said, happy Mother's Day. And she said, oh, honey, I just want you to tell you how much I appreciate you as my child and my son. And you've exceeded every prayer and every dream I ever had for you. And you, you've made life so delightful for me. I'm like, mom, this isn't son's day. Stop. This is Mother's Day. Let me talk about you. And she said, well, honey, in a minute. But first I want to. And then, and so anyway, um, but that's a mom, right? That's that's we that's what, you know, anyway. So thank you. Uh, for uh, being a mom. And, uh, and I know some of you are not a mom, but you're here today with your mom. Uh, you, she, you know, you're at church to make your mom happy. And, uh, and that's a good motive, making mom happy. So way to go. And I hope the whole day will be like that. Um, and I want to, and wherever you're at, uh, what, I do want to say hi to the campuses, whatever motive brings us here. So everybody at Woodbridge and Sloan Creek and Richardson and Espanol, uh, wherever you're at online. Um, before we start this series, the second thing I want to say is just a little update about Love Does the Unexpected. So Love Does the Unexpected is this season that we just launched in our church. This season, I hope, becomes a movement. I hope it lasts a long time, but we'll respond to God and see where it goes. But it's had a great start. And over the last four weeks, uh, we've launched this in our series, Bob Goff, and then Easter in the last two weeks as a lot of people have demonstrated unexpected love. And, and the whole thought of this is that we just want to love like Jesus asked us to love, which is the way that he loved. So the way that he loved, that's the way he calls us as his followers to love. And that is always surprising, always unexpected. And Jesus told us that if we wanted to win over a skeptical world, uh, that we do it with love. And that's what the early church did. That's what God calls us to do. 
And so we want to love in our culture and community ways that begins to redefine church and let people know, lets people know how awesome Jesus is uh, just as we begin to try to love like he loved. And so let's continue to do it. And, and I want to thank everybody who's done it on your own, like in your neighborhood, at work and school, wherever you're at, just find ways to say, hey, how can I big ways, little ways, medium ways that matter? Just what can I do to demonstrate unexpected love? And when people say, hey, why would you do this? Like, who does that? Just say, well, just the way Jesus loves me. I can't help but do that. It's been really cool to hear all the stories. In fact, people are emailing me and calling into the church who don't go to this church who have been loved by you in an unexpected way and found out it has something to do with this church and have said, I don't know what the deal is. I just want to thank you for being a church like that because somebody who said they were yours did this for me. And it really blew me away. And how cool is that? Right. So thank you for uh, doing what you're doing. And let's it's not the end. This is the beginning. We've also done a number of projects um, you know, with hundreds of people doing these big projects and we're raising money. Part of love does the unexpected is give generously. And many of you have been giving to love does the unexpected. And I just want to catch you up where that is. So we wanted to give, uh, uh, three partners or, uh, get unexpected gifts. And two of those are new partners for us that are kind of unexpected partners. And one of those is the aid services of Dallas uh, that serves those in our community with HIV AIDS that are homeless, uh, that can't afford medication and so on. Uh, one of those is, uh, the bail project, um, that we're uh, helping to bring to this area. And I know if you're, if that's new, you're like, what, uh, you can go online and there's information about that. And then we want to fill up our area food banks, which always get empty this time of year. It's not a time of year. People are really giving to that. And so we wanted to give really significant gifts to that. And my prayer, and we're still, money's still coming in, but my prayer is we would raise maybe $120,000 so that we could give significant surprising gifts to these organizations. And that's what I was praying for, hoping for. You, you, let me just give you an update. You did not give so far $120,000. This is where we're at right now, a little over $300,000. So it's amazing. Um, So thank you for your unexpected generosity and you can still give and uh, you can go online and there's there's a way to do that. It'll it'll say, you know, uh, the unexpected or love does the unexpected on PayPal or on our website. But thank you for being who you are. Now, with all that, we are ready now to jump into our one question series. And these are just big questions that you've had. You've uh, you've sent these in. That's what the series is built around. And today's question is one that it's a it's it's not a softball. Uh, It's a hard question. And and it's a very perspective giving question, a kind of difficult question. And so when I thought about this as we were constructing the series, I thought, man, the the perfect person on our staff, on our team to answer this question uh, is uh, it's not me. I mean, I, I guess I could do it. But the person I, I go to for just because he's a great thinker and a great teacher um, is on our staff, one of our pastors named Greg Holmes. And I thought, man, this series is like perfect for him. I'd love for him to start off the series. And, uh, and he's going to do that. It's been such a great weekend on a, on a topic that we all need perspective about. So to that end, let's welcome Greg Holmes to the stage.
Well, as Jeff uh, said, my name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm thrilled that I get to be the one to launch into this series, which I think is going to be really great. So on our website and on our social media channels, we posted this question. We said, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And there were all kinds of responses. You guys responded really big and there were questions all over the place. Questions sort of like, um, were you just practicing with the dinosaurs? Which is kind of a, kind of an interesting question. Or, uh, why did God make boogers? I'm pretty sure whoever asked that question, you're the one making the boogers, not God. Um, or other questions like, do I have the potential to be better than Kyler Murray in the NFL? Um, and actually, you know, with that, there's, there's a lot of questions about, you know, our future and like, well, what does God have in store for me? What's his plan for my life? Or, or this simple question, cockroaches, why? You know, so there were a lot of just kind of random questions, but most of the questions that came in were pretty serious. And most of them fell into uh, pretty understandable categories or, or around certain topics. So we sort of tallied up all of those questions, put them into topics, and then we are building this series around your questions. And it is going to be a fascinating series around some difficult and fascinating questions. A lot of questions about heaven. So we're going to have one week we're going to talk about heaven. Um, a lot of questions about personal disappointment and sort of unfulfilled dreams and why did my life turn out this way and, and, and stuff like that. And so we'll spend one week on that. Um, a lot of questions are on sexual orientation. Um, so we're going to talk about that one week. And then um, this week, I have the opportunity to talk about the, the category of question that had the most entries, like by far. Like most of the questions that came in were around this topic, and all of them were worded differently, but if you were to boil them down and summarize what this question is, it's, God, why do bad things happen to good people? God, if you are so good then why is there so much pain and so much suffering and so much awfulness in the world? And as it just sort of worked out for this, when this series was starting and me preaching on the first weekend of the series, that means that I have the awkward task of talking about the problem of suffering on Mother's Day. <laughs> Doesn't that sound fun? Thank you, Jeff Jones, for that. Um, but as, you know, as I was thinking about that and just kind of like, what... You know, what an awful question to come around on Mother's Day. I actually think that every mother has struggled with this. Because you look at this, at the face of that baby, and you just want to do everything in your power to keep them safe and to keep them from experiencing the pain and suffering of this world. But as you look at their face, you just know what kind of world they've been brought into. And why does it have to be that way? You know, I think that for some, this question is just an interesting sort of philosophical question. You know, how do we reconcile the world we live in with the notion of God? And certainly skeptics use the problem of suffering as kind of an easy dismissal against the existence of God. We're going to talk about that, actually. Um, but for other people, this question is much, much, much more personal. It's not so much, why do bad things happen to good people? It's more like, why do bad things keep happening to me? Or to the people, or to the people that I love. For for some of us who struggle with faith, or struggle with our relationship with God, or struggle to maintain hope and joy, um, it's because of one of these questions. For some of us, faith is dying a slow death 
because of something that has happened in the world or is happening in the world or something that has happened in our life or is happening in our life that we just can't seem to reconcile with what the Bible teaches to be true about God. The Bible teaches that God is all powerful and that he could do and can do anything and that he is in complete control and he's he's completely sovereign over the big and the small. The Bible also teaches that he loves us and that he is fervent in his love for us and he's compassionate and he's tender and he hears our prayers and he's eager to bless. But the world teaches us that evil is real and pain and suffering is pervasive and things like disease and natural disaster and injustice fills this world that a loving God sits sovereignly over. And I can tell you that at a personal level, reconciling all of that is as hard for me as it is for you. And it is one thing to talk about this sort of in abstract terms, but when you're the one going through it, when you're the one who experiences disaster or or trauma or, or something like that, it just gets hard. And it can make us ask questions like, is God really in control? I mean, really? I mean, does he really? Does he really love us? I have been, you know, as a pastor, I have spent hours with people uh, just wrestling with these questions. Many of us have been in those conversations or we ourselves have just wrestled with these. And in those conversations, there are just so many questions that begin with the word why. Why did God allow this? Why does it have to be this way? Why won't God do something? And in each one of those conversations, like you, I... You know, try to find something profound to say, have something encouraging to say, and inevitably I end up feeling inadequate, and today's not going to be any different. Today will not be satisfying. But I do think it will be encouraging, because the Bible has an awful lot to say on this topic. Specifically, we're going to look at three things that the Bible teaches. That the Bible teaches first how to think about what has already happened. How to think through what God has already done and what are we to learn about God from what has already happened, from what he's already done. The second thing we're going to look at is how to think about what is going to happen. What God is going to do in the future and how that shapes our hope. And then the third thing is how to think about what is currently happening, happening in our lives, happening in the world. How can we find some semblance of meaning through our struggle? So let's jump in and let's look back first. You know, when Jesus uh, walked the earth among the crowds of people that he had following him, he also had uh, just some really, really close friends. And we know the names of some of his closest friends. Some of his closest friends were a group of siblings, uh, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. In John chapter 11, there is a beautiful story involving the three of them that, unfortunately, because of time, we're not going to be able to completely like pick apart and dive into. But I do encourage you on your own time to read John chapter 11 because there's a lot to learn about God in that chapter But let me just sort of summarize what happens. John 11 begins with Mary and Martha sending urgent word 
uh, sending an urgent message to Jesus. And they knew where Jesus was. Jesus was just kind of on the other side of the Jordan River from Bethany where they were. It was less than a day's journey away. They send an urgent message to Jesus. And that message was, your friend, our brother, Lazarus, is very, very sick. And they send this urgent message because they know Jesus and they know that Jesus loves them. And they also know that Jesus has the power to heal and they want him to come quickly. And John sort of explains that Jesus understands what is going on. He understands uh, what they're going through. He understands their suffering, understands the questions they're going through. He understands the urgency of the moment. And he responds by staying where he was for two more days. And then when he decides to make his way to Bethany, he evidently didn't go at a very fast pace because by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already died and he's been in a tomb for four days. Now consider that a minute. They send urgent message to Jesus because they know that Jesus loves them, has power to heal. Please come quickly. And Jesus doesn't come. And then Lazarus dies. Still no Jesus. Then they're preparing the body for, for burial. Still no Jesus. By the time Jesus comes, he's been in a tomb for four days. Jesus missed the funeral. But imagine what the conversation was like between Mary and Martha there in Bethany. These were Jesus' friends. When, when uh, Jesus finally shows up, Martha articulates what many of us have also thought or, or, or said, she says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Another way to say this is, Jesus, you are partially to blame for this. I mean, we know from other passages that Jesus didn't actually have to be present to heal. Jesus, you could have done something and you did nothing. And many of us have thought the same things or articulated the same things. And it is so good to know that there is nothing wrong with her faith for saying this. It is just confusing. Bad things happen to the friends of Jesus all the time. Well, then Jesus goes to the tomb where Lazarus was laid. And before he does what he knew he was about to do, he pauses And he enters into the pain of the moment in such a way that it caused the Jews who were watching to say, see how he loved them. And it's important that we don't just sort of rush on to what what Jesus sort of finally does and recognize what he did there. When he stopped, he entered into the, the pain of the moment of the friends who were suffering. And we are given this insight that these two words, Jesus wept. It's given their own verse numbers, the shortest verse in our English Bible. And it's as if we were just not to read past this too quickly because this is important. Jesus didn't just rush to the conclusion, he didn't rush to their rescue. These were Jesus' friends and they were suffering. And he identified with their suffering. One of the great themes in our Bible is that God identifies with our suffering. And there's all of these great te- texts that say things like, if you oppress the poor, you oppress me. Uh, I am a father to the fatherless. I am a husband to the widow. He so um, identifies with our pain. 
and binds his heart with the heart of the suffering, that he interprets any action against those who are hurting as an action against him. And so Jesus, his friends are mourning and they're suffering, and he enters in and he feels it with them, and he weeps because he loves them. And then he steps forward. And he demonstrates his power by bringing about resurrection and new life by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, this story, John chapter 11, sort of serves as an illustration, sort of condensed down into one afternoon, something that God is doing on a grand human history scale, that there's a period of time where suffering is sort of allowed to continue. God identifies with that, but then ultimately demonstrates his power by bringing about new life and resurrection. It's like that's what's happening on a grand human scale. This is condensed down into one afternoon. But one of the um, things that we are to learn from this story is that Mary and Martha and also Lazarus were not suffering because Jesus didn't love them. Because clearly he did. And and they were not suffering because Jesus was impotent to help. Because he is still all-powerful. He was doing something else. And they didn't see it until the end of the story. Well, after John 11, uh, Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem. And there at Jerusalem, he would identify with our suffering in an ultimate way by offering his body as sacrifice for sins. He does so freely through his death on the cross. And then he demonstrates his power in an ultimate way by raising himself from the dead and offering new life and, and hope to anyone who calls upon his name. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus, along with all these other stories in the Bible, sort of prove once and for all that God does love us and he is in complete control no matter what. And so these things that he teaches about us are super, super important for us to remember. Because when we go through heartbreak and when we ask our why questions and it's so confusing, we might not find out what the answer is, but we can know for certain what the answer isn't. It's not because God doesn't love us. It's not because he is in it's not because he, he's not in complete control, because God has already proven those things about himself. It's about the, something else is going on, and we are not at the end of our story yet. Throughout the Bible, um, throughout the Bible, people just like you and me cry out why to God for, uh, for answers to what they are going through, just like we do. And over and over and over, what we see is, is God turning their attention back to what he has proven about himself. In fact, more often than not, we see God gives us who answers to why questions. He keeps turning us back to him and to what he has done and what his character is, because we would not understand the answer to the why questions anyway. It would be like us explaining to a three-year-old the nature of evil or why a you know, painful medical procedure is actually a good thing. It's like we, would not, we could not understand those things. We said, I just need you to look at me. I, just need to, I, I need for you to consider and to remember who I am and, and, and what I have done. You know, that is the, that's the whole theme of the Old Testament book of Job. 
Job experiences all of this suffering and he spends chapter after chapter after chapter asking all of these why questions. He eventually comes to the end of, he eventually comes to the point of of essentially accusing God of injustice. And then God speaks up and says, now wait a minute. And he has a few questions of his own for Job. Questions like, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Can you make it rain? Can you tame the crocodile? Stick a barb in his nose. Thou wilt not do it again. And over and over, he, he, he pushes Job back to, to God's character and says, I need you to look at me. I need you to consider me. And in the end, Job's faith is strengthened. Even though he didn't get any answers to the questions he was asking, he received the answers that he needed. So we look back and we see what God has done, what he's taught us about himself that he is in control and he has never and will never stop loving us. And then we hold on to that. And we say, I, I don't understand why it is I'm going through what I'm going through, but I am going to choose to believe that God still loves me and that he is still in control. And I am going to trust him through this, whatever this is. So the Bible teaches us to look back and to learn some things about God's character. It also teaches us to look forward and to focus our hope. And specifically, the Bible teaches us that the current world is not the final world. It doesn't take a genius to recognize that, um, that this world is broken. Like not just humans, the whole world is broken. And things like natural disasters and earthquakes, you know, and tornadoes and diseases and cancer and all of those things. I mean, the whole world is broken. Not, it's beyond just human behavior. It's, it's just not right that innocent people would suffer, that thousands of people would die in an earthquake or a tsunami or that a, a beautiful family would just get swept away by a tornado or a, a beautiful young child would get inflicted with cancer. Like something is wrong with the world. And so the Bible teaches and Christians have always believed and taught that the current world is not the final world. And Jesus taught about this, saying the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, like this future thing that God is going to do. This is what it's going to be like. And Paul talked about it, and Peter talks about it. The book of Revelation talks about this. The Bible teaches that the world hasn't always been broken, and it will not always be broken. When God created the world and he gave it to us, he also gave to us our most coveted attribute, the thing that actually makes us human, our freedom to choose. And when we use that freedom to rebel against God, everything broke. Everything in us broke. Everything around us broke. Everything broke. And that's that's not fair, I know, but it's true. Some of us... um, Some of us suffer because of uh, decisions that our parents made when we were young, and that's not fair, but it's true. Some of us are predisposed to certain illnesses because of who we're related to, and that's not fair, but it's true. And so Christians have always believed and taught that when we sinned and sin entered the world, it entered the entire world. And that's not fair, but it's true. It's sort of like we unleashed this virus that it has spread and infected every molecule of creation. 
and it's not fair. But it's true. And if, if there's any type of answer to our why questions that, that makes any type of sense, it's just that. It's just that we, it's, it's that everything is broken. But the Bible teaches um, that this version of the world is not the original version. It's also not the ultimate version. Look at what Paul says in Romans, in Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. By the way, that's us in future form. We have not yet been revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, which clearly has not happened yet. All of creation is an eager expectation. All of creation recognizes that this is not how it was supposed to be. All of creation is waiting eagerly to be released from its bondage to decay. And Paul's saying, like, we know that decay is the name of the game now. Like, our bodies decay, buildings decay, stones decay, everything, everything decays. But someday the children of God will be revealed. And when that happens, we will experience what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. And it will be a physical resurrection. And when that happens, creation will experience a recreation. The Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth. And we will experience what God has always wanted for us to experience. A type of life where evil has been done away with and there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more death and no more tears. And if hearing that makes you long for a better day, then that is a good thing. We are supposed to live in light of a good day that's supposed to be coming. We're supposed to long for that. But that may also cause some of us to say, well, why won't he just get on with it? Like, what is he waiting on? Does he not see what's going on? Like, why is he so slow? Look at Peter's answer to that very question. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I can tell you personally, at a personal level, um, I am glad that God did not put an end to all evil in 1979, because I came to Christ in 1980. God is not slow. He's patient. And in this broken world, he is drawing people to himself. So we look back and it builds our trust around the character of God and what he teaches us to be true about him, that he loves us and he's in control. We look forward and it focuses our hope to what he will someday do in the future. But what are we to do now? Like, how do we respond to all of this Now, you know, as hard as it is, um, as hard as it is to reconcile what the Bible teaches to be true about God in the world that we actually live in, I actually believe 
that what we experience, the pain and what we experience in the world, what we experience personally, like pain and suffering and injustice and disaster and those things, that those things have the power to turn us toward God and not away from him, even for skeptics. Even for skeptics who might be more prone to use the problem of suffering as a sort of an easy, you know, uh, argument against the existence of God. Like, like I want, consider this. We all have things, like when we go through the world and we go through our life that we see and we say, well, that ain't right. And that ought not be. Like, whatever that, like, that just ought not be. Like, this just ain't right. Like, when Alabama just keeps winning, it's just like, this just, it just ain't right. You know, as a result of the fall, I'm, con- I'm convinced. <laughs> and we see these things, it's like, it just, that just ought not be. Like, you, you turn on the TV and you see something like this. Do you, do you guys remember the Teletubbies? Oh, my goodness, what in the world? That just ought not be. Or you see this. I was just recently made aware of this. This is, this is dancing with cats. Um, it's a thing, evidently. Clearly, it shouldn't be. Um, or how about this? This is the Taco Bell French Toast Chalupa. Oh, my gosh. Who in the right mind thought that was a good idea? Like, and it's, and it's, you know, fun with stuff like that. And you say, well, that just ought not be. It's not so fun when it's something like abuse of power or injustice or theft or deceit or natural disasters. And we, we all see these things and we say that just ought not be. That is why, by the way, the problem of suffering is a problem like universally, like across all cultures. We all have this sense that certain things ought and ought not be. And this sense of ought and ought not, that was the very thing that moved C.S. Lewis from being a skeptic to believing in God. If you don't know, like C.S. Lewis was a kind of a, a well-known Christian author and, and teacher, professor, and he wrote Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia and the Screwtape Letters and all kinds of things. And he came to Christ fairly late in life. But he recognized that there were certain things that he believed other people ought and ought not do. And then he asked himself, where did ought come from? If I just made it up, I I have no right to hold someone else accountable to that. But if, if I didn't make it up, then that means someone else put ought and ought not inside of me. And it sure seems like that for the most part, pretty much everybody across cultures and across upbringing have a lot of similarities for ought and ought not. Like when, when you are in an argument with somebody else, um, you are arguing because you believe that other person violated some unspoken agreement of ought and ought not. Well, you ought to have done that. Well, you ought not to have done that. And none of us believe that we just made that up. C.S. Lewis gave a, gives another example. He says, um, if, you, if you were to hear a terrifying scream in the dark, you will immediately feel three impulses. The first will be to engage and to help someone else who is in need. The next impulse will be an impulse to flee out of your own sense of self-preservation. And the third impulse will be, a, will be an impulse of ought that will teach you or tell you to suppress your fear and to help someone who needs help, even though that is in violation to my own um, 
to my own, you know, even though, even though that's in violation of like natural selection and my own sense of self-preservation. So for C.S. Lewis, the skeptic, it was the pain in the world and the evil in the world and suffering in the world that, that told him that there must be a God because he had an inescapable sense of ought and ought not that came from outside of him. And that's coming from the perspective of a skeptic, which I just think is fascinating. But what about for the rest of us who believe in God, who are learning to trust in his character and, you know, to build our trust in who God is. But nevertheless, this, this, it is just so painful right now. What are we to do with that? How do we respond to this broken world like now and what I'm feeling now? Well, the Bible is full. I mean, it is quite literally full of, of instruction on how to do that, on what we are to do. And all of these passages to turn toward God, to, to find shelter in him, to cry out to him to let him comfort us, like all of, these, all of these things. But then also it is full of instructions, like other instructions, like to, help, to, to come along others and help them while they're struggling and to use our sense of ought and ought not to sort of motivate us into action and to do things and to, and to comfort other people. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God comforts us in all of our troubles so that... We can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So we can see that our pain sends us to the heart of God where he comforts us. And our pain sends us to the purposes of God because he desires to comfort others also. And so for most of us, what we have gone through becomes like part of our calling, helps define sort of our calling and what we can sort of offer to the world. It's like the sacred trust that we can now come alongside other people who are also suffering and struggling, and we can do so from a position of experience. And we can actually have something to say. You know... Um, And he uses that sense, so, he, so God uses our heartbreak, or he uses the heartbreak when we see other people suffering, and he uses the anger that we might feel toward injustice. He uses our sense of ought and ought not to move us forward into action and move us forward into love, to move us forward to be his hands and feet as he is building his kingdom now on earth. And yes, someday that will, we will experience that in its fullness and it will come to fruition. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But scripture teaches that among his people, he's building it now. And so we have the opportunity to be, um, to be part of God's response in the world now. We don't have to have the answers to be part of the answer. There is a... Um, there's a couple that is a part of Chase Oaks that I just, I just love this couple. Larry and Charmaine Solomon um, have been through a lot. And, but God is using their experiences to help build something better for the world. Um, let's watch. My son Kyle, who is an inspiration to me, um, was not born 
um, with a disability. Carl's uh, sustained a traumatic brain injury um, when he was a baby. And so on a very ordinary day in 1986, um, I was involved in a car accident that really um, caused Carl to have a traumatic brain injury. You know, my possibilities really began um, when my son was graduating from high school. Carl went into his last art meeting and they were, oh, Charmaine, what are you going to do with Carl? And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with Carl. What options do I have? And they were like, I don't know. And my son's about 21 at this point. Um, and that set me on a journey to discover what options could happen when my son graduated from high school and come to find out there was nothing. So I called up another mother, her son and my son were at school together and I said, so what are you doing with your son? She says, I don't know, what are you doing with yours? And we met at Starbucks and we scratched on the back of a Starbucks napkin, really, the blueprint. And actually, when we look back now, the divine inspiration for what was to become my possibility. We really were looking just to fix a solution for our children. And we, there were two mothers and we were like, okay, we'll just get a house and we'll start something small for our children. So that's how the idea really began. We had no money. I mean, we started this organization with nothing. We had to raise $200,000 to begin the journey. And we did that through popcorn sales, other people's trash out of the booth. I mean, it's amazing. But really, it was so personal to us. We were thinking only about ourselves until we realized that there was a much more global position. God's plan for my possibilities is way beyond anything we could ever have imagined. Starting off with a vision of just doing something for our children. It's grown into this campus serving 650 people. We are currently sitting in one of seven buildings that are going to be built on this 20-acre land. The second part of the plan is residence. Creating home uh, facilities for people with special needs. And God has provided, uh, once again, we now own 176 acres of land in Garland that is going to be converted into a residential center. Thirdly is jobs. And we have joined forces with a company called Launchability who do exactly that. Help individuals with special needs find work in the community. I always laugh if anybody knows, I say, you know, one day when I get to meet God, we're gonna have to have a conversation about an idea and the scope of, this, the scope of work because it's way beyond what I had imagined. My gosh, I did not imagine to lead an organization this size, this big, this serving so many people. This campus is a shining example of God's work because this was so way beyond what we could ever do as humans. We could never even have thought about this when we first started. God had this always in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm that. I mean, just sort of imagine um, when that car accident happened, just how painful, how emotionally confusing that must have been. No doubt, Larry and Charmaine asked why a lot. And then when their son aged out of support services and they realized that there was really nothing left that, that our culture, our society could sort of offer, they just sort of felt like, well, that ought not be. You know, we live in a culture that just sort of easily dismisses whole categories of people, like beautiful men and women who have something, you know, significant to offer to the world. And you get the sense from watching that video. I mean, Larry, Larry and Charmaine are very polite, 
But you get this sense of sort of watching that, that the, that the whole notion that a society would sort of discount adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities as if they don't matter. Like for Larry and Charmaine, you just sort of get the sense that that just pisses them off. Am I allowed to say that? I don't... Righteous indignation. How about that? So God is using their sense of righteous indignation combined with the skills and gifts that he has given to them, combined with the love that he has placed in their heart, combined with the power of the Holy Spirit to build something, to, to help build the type of world that God wants all of us to experience. The type of world where, where no one is set aside because they don't fit into a nice, neat category. The type of world where everybody has a chance to, to live and grow and flourish and fulfill their potential. And isn't that beautiful? And I recognize, though, that as beautiful as that is, and everything that I've been talking about today, I haven't actually answered the question of why do bad things keep happening to me. And I haven't given a satisfying answer to the problem of suffering. And the reason is there is no answer that once we hear it will make us satisfied. There's no answer that once we hear it, we'll say, oh, okay, now I'm okay. Now I'm satisfied with pain and suffering. Now I'm okay that those people don't have water. Now I'm okay that that child has cancer. Now that you've given me the answer. And the reason there's no satisfying answer to the problem of pain and suffering is because there's enough of the goodness of God still left in us that causes us to be dissatisfied, that will always cause us to be dissatisfied when, other, when we see innocent people suffer. That there's enough, even after the fall, that there's enough of the image of God left that, that causes us to say, well, that just ain't right. That spurs us into action to, to, to do things and to yearn for a better day. And as we've talked about, a better day is coming. At the end, at the last book of uh, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee wakes up, you know, believing that all has been lost. And then he is surprised to see all of his friends around him. And he exclaims, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then I thought I was dead. Will everything sad come untrue? What a great line. And the answer is yes. Everything sad will come untrue someday. Until that moment, we lean on the character of God, what he has proven to be true about us, that he will always love us, he has always loved us, and he is in complete control. And we turn to him for comfort in our pain, knowing that he is as heartbroken over pain and suffering as we are. And then we recognize that as as people in our world cry out in their loneliness and in their despair and, and in their tragedy, it is easy to ask, why won't God respond? But he is responding. He's sending us. God responds through his people. So he's sending us into each other's lives. He's sending us into our neighborhoods. He's sending us into our community because he loves us and his heart is broken. So we comfort others with the comfort that he's given to us. And we try to alleviate suffering as much as we can. And we um, push 
against evil and we shine light into darkness and we fight against injustice. But even in all of that labor, we recognize that the ultimate answer is not us. The ultimate answer in this decaying world is a brand new world. And so even in all of our labor, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. I didn't answer the question. It doesn't seem like God's in a real hurry to give us answers to our why questions. Maybe we'll know at the end of the story. But he has told us where to place our trust, how and where to focus our hope, and how to respond to this broken world. And that's a lot. And that's a lot. I know because I've been in so many conversations with people at Chase Oaks that there are so many here at Chase Oaks that are just going through awful things right now. And as inadequate as it sounds to say, all I can offer to say is I am sorry. I am so sorry. Hang in there. God has not forgotten about you. I promise. I promise. And for the rest of us who are just heartbroken over what we see in the world, we need to know that that heartbreak is God-given to spur us forward to be his hands and feet in the world until he comes. Until he comes. I didn't answer the question, but I hope that that's at least a little bit encouraging. At least it is for me. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we have so many questions that are so hard um, for us to be left unanswered, but we recognize that even if you gave the answers, we probably wouldn't understand. So I pray that you would give us the strength um, to trust in what you've proven to be true about yourself. You would give us the fortitude to keep our eye on what you will one day do and hope in that, and that you will muster up our endurance and our love and our activism to be your hands and feet in this world until you come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.